This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello, a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. A warm welcome also to Joe, who's going to be signing for us this evening. And welcome to this RBS-sponsored event. It's a delight and an honour to welcome this evening's author back to the festival. His appearances on stage here in Edinburgh have been few, but they've been memorable. In 1964, he appeared at the Fringe as part of an Oxford University show in Cranston Street Hall with a group called the Etceteras, alongside fellow student Terry Jones. With Terry, he went on to become part of the now legendary Monty Python's Flying Circus, which defined comedy for a generation. Now, last time he was at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, 25 years ago, he was sporting an unlikely mop of permed curly hair. <laughs> Being Edinburgh, we were far too polite to say anything about this, but the reasons became clear later that autumn when A Fish Called Wanda was released. And, of course, for that film, he won a BAFTA Award for Best Supporting Actor. His career took a different direction from the late 1980s as a travel writer, and his journeys have brought the world into our living rooms. And his televised adventures have taken him to the North and South Poles, to the Sahara Desert, to the Himalayas, and most recently to Eastern Europe. In 2000, he was honoured with a CBE for his services to television. And he's here this evening to talk about his second novel, The Truth. So please give a very well, warm welcome back to the Edinburgh International Book Festival to Michael Palin. Thank you. Thank you. Ah. <clears throat> it's very nice to have you back here again. Well, it, it's lovely. I mean, Edinburgh means a lot to me. As you were alluding there to my appearance at the Cranston Street Hall, then run by the Edinburgh Parks and Burials Department. I remember that. <laughs> we always thought this is a great place to do comedy. Um, and it was one of the most exciting times in my life because I was a member of the Oxford uh, Review Group, etc. And, um, and we put this show together and we were nobody. Nobody knew us. Nobody had any idea what we might do. And it was this wonderful feeling if you just had to get it together, like all the other groups around Edinburgh. We had to do our bit. We had to try and get people in. And fortunately, we, we put together rather a good show. And, and uh, in fact, we, we had to do additional performances. And we had one called Rejects Night, when at 1.30 in the morning, we got a big dustbin on stage, and we read scripts and sketches that hadn't been good enough to get on to the, into the script. We just read bits. And when they weren't any good, we threw them in the bin. <laughs> And it went down ever so well. In fact, I think we, got the, <laughs> we put the wrong scripts in the show. We should have done the ones that went in the bin, which people liked. But there was a lovely feeling then of being free, and, and, um, and it was quite exciting, and you just didn't know where it was going to lead. It was a great venue, that, because we're just saying that the year after that, we think, was the first year that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern was premiered in that very yes, venue. Yes, by the Oxford Theatre Group, yeah. exactly, yeah. So we paved the way for Tom Stopper. Without <laughs> us, he'd still be Tom Stopper. <laughs> Have you been to any Oxford reviews since then, <coughs> since that day? Um, I've been one or two, not, not very mm. many. Um, it's just one of those things you, you kind of, it's a time in your life and you can't really recreate mm. it. it. It's a bit like I found 
going back to university, you think, I remember going back to Oxford after I left, and I felt really out of it. It's not my mm. place anymore. It's somebody else's place. It's the new generation's place. Um, I'm just an outsider, like some tourist wandering around. And um, I thought that was a useful lesson in life, generally, really. Um, got to keep moving onwards and upwards. Well, we're very pleased to snare you back, though, to the book yes. festival well, to talk about you. your novel. But it's Lovely. 17 years since you last wrote a novel, yes. Hemingway's Chair. Yes. So why the gap? And what prompted you now to, <laughs> to write fiction again? Well... <sighs> I mean, I enjoyed the process of writing Hemingway's Chair, but it was, at the time, it was a sort of experiment. I was basically an actor doing comedy, also straight acting, like in uh, GBH, mm. Alan Bleasdale's um, ten-part series. And I was also beginning to do travel programmes. I mean, around the world in eight years, done pole to pole, and I just wasn't quite sure where I was mm. going and, um, and had a bit of a gap, and I thought, well... I'll, I'll try and write a novel, and, and actually the, the idea be behind Hemingway's Chair um, was an idea I'd had for a TV series called um, um, Item for Sale. Mm. Uh, I don't think it was ever made into a series. The idea was that there would be some item for sale mm. which would start the whole thing going. In this case, it was a, a chair in the shop window used by Hemingway. Um, anyway, having, having written that, I, I felt from the reception, which was mixed, but on the whole people were, were mm. generous about it. I thought, I can't just write one novel, you know, and then that's it. That seems too sort of fey. You've got to, come on, you're a novelist. You can't be a novelist if you've written mm. one. Um, but then I, by that time, I was, I was into um, the big journey around the mm. Pacific. That led on to the Hemingway series and then Himalaya. And there were a lot of distractions. But I did have many, many um, attempts to write uh, another novel. I mean, I've got a file full of starts and middles, but no ends. I had a wonderful idea about um, um, uh, a murder that took place in the sewers in Glasgow. Um, and it was all now, that sounds promising. But very <laughs> promising, yeah. yeah. The sewers are lovely. Have you ever been down? No. <laughs> Has anyone ever been down the sewers in Glasgow? You, really beautiful. They're beautifully made. It's like sort of a beautiful brickwork. It, I mean, you know, nobody's going to see it, and yet they made it so beautifully. That, that is civic, civic pride for you. Anyway, uh, it all started because I was in, in a place called um, Segovia in Spain, and I saw this in front of me, a great big wonderful old drain cover, and it said, Mark Norton and Sons, <laughs> Glasgow y Valencia. <laughs> and I thought, this is... So I went straight home and, and made a file called Glasgow e Valencia. <laughs> I told people I was writing a novel called Glasgow e Valencia. <laughs> and I even so I went, went as far as having a conducted tour down the sewers, but it didn't really, the book didn't go anywhere. Well, the, the, the truth, um, I, again, it was, it was after I'd finished a, a, a journey, mm. we'd done the New Europe series, and I, I felt that's the end, I'm not doing it anymore. Um, travel programs, wrong as it turned out, yeah. but that's what I felt at the time. And I wanted to be at home and I had new grandsons and we just, we had new grandsons, but just, I just enjoyed being with the family. Mm. And then walking one day through the centre of London, uh, come BBC to my agents, and suddenly this idea came into my mind and it was really essentially what the truth is, even the story uh, and, uh, and an ending. And so I set to work, because this happens very, very rarely, 
that that kind of moment strikes when you get beginning, middle, and end. I remember Alan Bennett saying, "Oh, I, 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 can't, I can't do I can't do endings at all. I, <laughs> it should be a shop. It should be a shop. A plot shop. <laughs> go have a go have a few yards of plot." And um, I, I knew what he meant because for a long time I, I couldn't get it sorted. But this had a plot. So anyway, so that's how it happened. The truth starts in Sombra. Yes. In Shetland. Yes. And travels quite rapidly to India. Yes. And did you travel specially to research these locations, or was it from your previous knowledge? No, I travelled especially to research the locations. I had at one time thought I could just do it on mm. things I'd seen before, but they've got to be fresh. And also, you know, in the story, um, the, the, one of the two main characters is an environmentalist um, who keeps very discreet, does his work around the world, very shy, nobody really knows how he operates, how he does it, um, but he's revered by people mm. just because he hasn't sold out, he's doing it purely because he believes mm. in the rights of you know, minorities, uh, indigenous peoples, all that sort of thing. And I thought, well, I can't really just make this up. And a report had come out from Amnesty International about uh, aluminium refinery in, in, in India, which uh, there was some controversy over it being there in the first place, but it was seeking to extend um, to become bigger, and they wanted local bauxite for the aluminium process. And they had their eyes on a range of hills. And these hills were the ancient sacred hills of a tribe who actually lived there and had lived in India for over 2,000 years. Um, and I became quite interested in this story and I read the Amnesty report and I thought, well, this is the sort of thing that, you know, A, the character's called Melville, the environmentalist, this is what he should be concerned with. Mm. So let, I'll go and see what that's like. And I went, over to, I went to India and saw what was going on and it was so similar to what I wanted to say. Mm. that I, I mean, actually, it's very, very similar to what's in the novel. Of course, all, all the names have been mm. changed to avoid me being sued or anything like that. But um, that was a very important journey. That really kick-started the novel. It, I got to a certain point, and I needed to push it somewhere. And the feel of the work you did on the ground, mm. and the sights, the smells, the places, and just seeing what an endangered tribe uh, in India looked like, how they lived and all that. It was, it was fascinating. So that was, that was very important. And so, I mean, then I went up, this book starts in Shetland because um, he, this, the Mabbot, who was the main character, was a journalist who had one lucky break and since then things haven't gone so well for him. So his agent is just getting him work in um, uh, writing company prospectuses and all that. And he's, he, um, the last job he's done is the history of the Sullenvo oil terminal, um, which I thought was the most boring thing you could ever, ever want to write. Having been up there, of course it isn't. It's a fascinating story, however. Um, so I then went up to Shetland and learnt a lot from that. So those two journeys to Orissa and to Shetland were very, very important for the book. And did you come back from Orissa having witnessed what was happening and what uh, the corporates wanted to do um, to the mountains. Did you come back angry? And how do you temper that when you're writing as a fiction? 
Well, I was kind of angry already from what mm. I'd read in this report, mm. but that's why I wanted to see it for myself. It was actually, I was angry, but in different ways. Um, I mean, you couldn't fail but to be angry when you see this enormous um, aluminium plant in the middle of uh, the paddy field. Um, and, and you have to be very, very careful, which I am in the book, to say, you know, not, not to be high, uh, hypocritical. We all use aluminium, you know. I couldn't have travelled to India without the plane made of aluminium. I couldn't have sent messages back without a phone made of aluminium. So you've got to be careful about that. And then, in the area around where the, where the big factory was, I could see that actually the, the local people, the indigenous tribe there, um, were just not really in the same world at all. And I, the only parallel I could think of was the way the Indian tribes were treated in, in America in the mid-19th mm. century. And they were given bits of paper and said, sign this and you will have rights, you give your rights mm. to us or whatever. And they didn't understand what it was all about. And I, the, the thing I really hadn't expected was to see the people who actually lived there and how they lived. And they just they didn't do anything all day. I could just see people saying, well, look, we can educate these people. We can give them a job. We can make, bring them into you know, better homes. They were just quite happy in the houses they were in, which are rather lovely, very long, low, thatched houses. They were in the middle of the forest, which they looked after immaculately. They knew how to grow mm. things and all that without destroying the forest. And they lived there for 2,000 years. But I could see that there was you know, very, very hard to defend them in some ways. And they were just sort of lying around and doing nothing. Um, so that sort of complicated things in my mind. There are quite a few ethical dilemmas. I mean, so yes, I, should say, yeah. so I should add that, you know, I, 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 felt, very, I felt very protective in mm. my sort of condescending Western mm. way of these people when I was there. I felt, God, we've got to help them. But that's yeah, well, that comes across thing. the reader. Yeah. Um, there's quite a number of ethical dilemmas, but Let's just talk a little bit more about the two men at the centre of the story, the idealistic environmental uh, journalist, yeah. Keith Mabbott, and this very attractive, swashbuckling, kind of private environmentalist, uh, Melville. Yes. And I think all through the novel, the reader is thinking, well, which one of these is the real hero? Yeah. Well, I'm not quite sure... I, that either of them is a hero. Mm. The book is actually a sort of debunking of the mm. whole idea of the hero yeah. in the same way it is of the truth. I'm not saying you can't have heroes. Yes. I had heroes when I was young, but I mean, I still do. Um, David Attenborough is a hero. Mm. Uh, Bruce Springsteen is mm. a hero. You know, <laughs> I want to get them together. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> Bruce! Well, man, Bruce on his knees, scudding across the front. Anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> where I went with that. That's a great Just image. be a wonderful. That's an event for next year, isn't it? <laughs> yes. David Attenborough and Bruce Springsteen discuss Jane Austen at the <laughs> Edinburgh Book Festival. Um, You'd better so, come back and introduce them. Oh, yes, I'll, I'll be the referee. Um, they'd agree. They just hug each other. I got a feeling. Anyway. Um, so, I mean, I have heroes, and, and I do know, I, am, I have my own ideas of what the truth is, but it's something so particular that you've got to be very careful you don't misuse the word. Mm. And I don't want, I mean, they're hero, Mabbott and Melville are the two main yes. characters in the novel, therefore, mm. technically, they're both heroes mm. in a way. And if there's one hero, I would say it's Mabbott, myself. Yes. What would you, what would I would you say? I would say it's Mabbott, yeah. yeah. 
by the end of the book. Because Mabbott yes. knows he's flawed right from the beginning. Yeah. You only discover later that Melville, his hero, oh. is, well, is flawed. Should we have a little... You <coughs> read a little bit? Yes. Yes, I'm very happy just to read get a, a little bit. More bit. Of the... Yeah. Um, the Truth, the novel by Michael Payne. Has anyone here it read on BBC Four? Oh. Yes. <laughs> well, I won't ask that again. <laughs> it's one of those English channels you probably don't get up here. <laughs> on Alex Salmon TV. <laughs> okay, no, 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 no. Come on, Michael, don't go there at all. <laughs> no, don't go there. This is fairly early on in the book, and it's the publishers um, who um, they're going to meet. Mabbott, 56-year-old uh, um, idealist, on his uppers, with his rather pushy agent called Scylla. Very pushy. Yeah, very pushy, yeah. yeah. And um, they go to uh, this mysterious meeting with a man who runs a publishing company called Urgent Books. <laughs> Urgent Books occupied the first two floors of an old tobacco warehouse on the south bank of the river between Southwark and London Bridge. It had been brusquely converted for a quick sale at the height of the property boom, and despite its cast-iron columns and sturdy brick walls, the change of use had rendered it virtually indistinguishable from a host of similar commercial developments which had sterilised a once quirky riverside. Automatic glass doors gave access to a wide open plan reception area, a curious conjunction of marble tiled floor and whitewashed brick walls. A curving glass staircase led up to a gallery and a bank of lifts serving the upper floors. Mabbott and Scylla were halfway up the stairs when a wiry, athletic man strode out onto the balcony above. Scylla waved. He nodded back at her with a wink that could have been a twitch. Or just a wink. Ron Latham didn't fit any preconceived idea Mabbott had of a publisher. He had very black curly hair and an almost unnaturally clear complexion, such as you might see on a waxwork. His shirt was collarless and worn tucked into snug-fitting black jeans. He wore a pair of rimless glasses, so thin they almost could be mistaken for part of his skull. His age could have been anything between 25 and 45. He greeted Scylla with a kiss and Mabbott with a firm grip from a surprisingly soft hand. Ron Latham, I'm the CEO. Everyone calls me Ron. He smiled mirthlessly and led them through an open-plan office, past 20 or 30 consoles, from which no one looked up. At the far end was the only room with a proper door, steel with a hardwood finish. Latham held it open and beckoned them into a conference room with a wide picture window overlooking the Thames. Mabbott caught sight of a train rumbling over the bridge to Cannon Street Station before Latham pressed a remote control and blinds clicked into place. Sorry, a bit bright. Coffee? A complete breakfast had been laid out at one end of the glass-topped conference table. Latham poured coffee and stretched his arm out over the spread. Uh, juice and pastries, croissant, whatever you want. He didn't make it sound tempting. Latham and Scylla talked a little of mutual friends and the ups and downs of the market. The two of them seemed comfortable together. Mabbott looked about him. At one end of the room stood an easel from which hung sheets of paper ruffled almost imperceptibly by the softly humming air con. Considering this was a publishing house, there were very few books to be seen. Maybe this was the shape of the future, the world on a screen. Mabbott was old-fashioned in these matters. He used a mobile and a computer, neither very competently, but when he was on the road, his first point of contact remained his notebook and pencil. As he reached for a croissant, Mabbott caught Latham's eye. Latham smiled crisply, 
professionally. Maybe he was nervous too, for when he spoke it was with a touch of unconvincing matiness. I've known Priscilla since she worked the showbiz pages at the Chronicle Group. I like her, always gone her own way, never followed the herd. Mabbott was about to reach for the butter, but thought better of it. So when this came along, she was the first person we went to for a recommendation. Mabbott looked across at his agent. Her expression gave no hint of her trademark hard-nosed scepticism. Instead, she stared back at him with a look of bright anxiety, like a mother who was taking a child to the doctor. Latham finished his coffee and put his cup back on the table. He smiled. She thought of you. For, for what, exactly, asked Mabbott. Something quite exciting. <laughs> and so it goes on. Now, with the wonderfully named Urgent Books. Yes. <laughs> yes yeah. Which publishers, of course, are not well known for being urgent. <laughs> yeah. And this fabulous portrait of Scylla, the, um, the agent. You've always had great fun with the publishing industry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I suppose so. I, I wasn't gunning for anybody at all. I just think there are, there are, there's a lot of bullshit around, as you know, <laughs> we all know. And I wanted to get a little bit of that in there. But I wanted to also make them characters who, who had, you know, reason for being mm. the way they were. And, uh, um, I mean, Ron Latham, I, I suppose I just saw him as one of these sort of very modern figures, does a lot of exercise, works out. You just don't know what's at the back of it all. You know, very much concerned with being tight, lean. Mm fierce, tough, but where's all the rest of it? And Scylla is tough, but she all, obviously there's a softer side, um, as is indicated here. But very interesting thing was that when I was, well, it's not that interesting, but I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> when I was writing the very beginning of the, the novel, Mabbott, um, after coming back from, from Shetland and uh, settling down to his sort of family, cracking up and all that, um, he decides to, to write his novel, and he settles down and starts the novel, and the phone rings. And in the book, it's just a lot of, oh, please, I'm sitting down. What, what do you mean? I'm doing, I'm, I'm, it's, it's a novel. I can't, I can't come to lunch. You know, it's a trilogy. You know, I can't come. <laughs> all this sort of stuff. Um, and um, the person on the other, on the other end, so, sort of, dear boy, you've got to come along. You know, I'm going to sort this out. I've got something really wonderful for you. So I then wrote the next bit where he goes into London, he goes in, finds this little place, the back of Tottenham Court Road, and he gets to the restaurant, and there, instead of a bloke, who I had thought, always thought he was going to be a bloke, that's why he calls Mabbott, dear boy, mm. I said, let's make it a woman, much more interesting, finds a woman in there. It was much more interesting for me as a writer <laughs> to suddenly find a woman in there. So, well, this is interesting. So suddenly it became Scylla. But up to that point, it was going to be Frank or Bert or something like that. Scylla really wasn't very supportive of Keith's fictional career. <laughs> no, no, she's not. <laughs> but, I mean, if you know the book he's trying to write, yeah. <laughs> you would not be supportive either, would you? I don't think. No, I don't think no, so. No, you don't, with your experience. <laughs> he's trying to write this novel, which is a trilogy, about the way the world sort of began, isn't it, really? Yeah first human experience where... Not science fiction, no. Not science no. fiction, no. Yeah, doesn't like cute, people cute. say, science fiction? No, no, it's just science fiction. <laughs> it's historical documentary, I think he calls it, <laughs> rather pompously. As you write, is there... Do you feel any pressure to write comedy? Or, to, or do you have to keep suppressing comedy in a fairly straight novel like this? I mean, I don't really feel 
it needs to be a comic novel. No. But my default mode is comedy. So I started writing this, you know, trying to build up the comedy. There was more, there was more comedy in it, it was more self-conscious laughs. And various people looked at it and said, look, there's a good story here. It's a, serious, mm. it's a fairly serious story. If you put in too much comedy, it just undercuts so no one will believe any mm. of it. So I just took one or two bits out and I felt they're absolutely right. And then I got over this sort of nervousness, I suppose, of, of being a, you know, a, pretty much a rookie as a, mm. as a, as a novelist. Um, and thought, well, let's just go for this as a, as a story and make it as real as possible. Um, and comedy creeps in. I hope people will realize that. It's, it's there all the time. But on the other hand, it doesn't devalue the, the tension that, that there is in the book. And, and oddly enough, I, I, I didn't mean the book to be a thriller, but it's turned out to be rather like that. Again, I have to be very, very um, grateful to Kirsty Dunseith that... Orion, my, my editor, who was brilliant, she just said, do we need that bit? And I said, it's, it's 14 pages. Of course we need it, you know. This is torn from my brain, I, you know, blood and sweat. And uh, she said, well, just try taking it out. And of course, it was much better. And I said, yeah, of course we didn't need that. So it does zip along now. Um, and, uh, and I think it was just, I wasn't really confident when I started. And that's why I made it into slightly more of a comic novel. Mm. Um, and I think you've got to cut. I do think editing is so important. I mean, self-editing, someone telling you to edit. Never, none of the edits, none of the lines ever removed from that um, have been anything but uh, you know, a benefit to the book. Um, the, this odd thing happened. That's why I asked, actually, if anyone's seen it on, heard it on Radio 4, read by Alex Jennings very well, I have to say. And um, it was reduced. I mean, it has to be. It's, uh, it was read over ten nights, but they're only, it's about 20% of the book. So the person who does the abridgment is a her hero, Libby Spurrier, in this case, did a wonderful job. Um, and my wife, bless her, she doesn't, she doesn't really read my books. She always said, I'm going to, I'm going to. I know, of course I'm going to, she says. And this was, you know, Hemingway's chair. That's yeah. 17 years. Oh. No, I'm going, to, I'm going to when I finish this one I've got at the moment. So, okay. Anyway. <laughs> she listens to this, um, it's a quarter to 11 in yep. the evening, is it? Yes, yes. quarter to 11. Yep. And both of us in the bathroom, you know, sort of, our electric toothbrushes poised, we wouldn't have them on, <laughs> we wouldn't be able to hear anything. And listen to Alex Jennings, and at the end says, that's jolly good. I said, well, that's good, I can write sometimes. She says, no, that's really good. Anyway, the, the point of this story is that I asked her at the end, I said, look, that's only 20% of the book. I mean, could you make head or tail of it? She said, yeah, and it seems fine to me. So... <laughs> What's the other 80% doing there? <laughs> I ask myself. I, I should be a pamphleteer, I think, not a novelist. <laughs> it, it is dealing with some very serious issues yeah. and about the role of the individual. So is there anything you'd like readers to take away from it, having read it and having considered those, some of those issues? Um, it's the simple thing... Uh, really, and, and, and the, the, the whole sort of basis of the book was really think for yourself. Mm. Think very carefully. Learn as much as you can about the debate that you're entering into or the situation you're entering into. Um, don't be led by other people, mm. um, unless you, or, you know, feel they're absolutely right. But in most cases, I think if you become engaged in something, you've got to become engaged from your own, from your own inter mm. inter intellect. You've got to understand something. And if occasionally that means being very, very tough on other people and all that sort of, and, and 
avoiding the, you know, the easy heroic mm. path and all that and saying, look, in this situation, I want to know everything about mm. it. I'm not saying in every situation, uh, but in this particular case, this book you know, is largely about environmental issues. Um, there are many, many complications yes. before you get to the truth, many complications. Mm. As I say, not least of which is the products that these people make in these refineries all over the world, from you know, Brazil mm. to Borneo to, to India, um, are products that we all use. We are all persuaded that it is good to buy things because if you buy things that will create a job mm. for somebody and someone around the world will be able to bring up their children and live better and all that sort of thing. So you've got to look, look ever, ever so carefully. Mm. And to me, this... You know, it'd be interesting to put everyone here in the same situation. If you went out to Arisa and you saw these people and you knew that if the company was given the right to uh, mine bauxite from the mountain, 30 feet mm. of the top of, the mount of this, of this mm. hill, the sacred hill, would just be ripped off. Um, they say they'll replace it in 25 years, it would be landscape. But basically, it is the end of that mm. particular way of life. An incredibly moving thing happened to me and I was there, uh, just at the time, and I was, we'd gone to this village, me and my guide, and it's not easy to go there. Obviously, people, everybody there sees a white guy come along and they think you're with the company. Mm. Um, so you've got to be very careful. But I was taken along with a very good guy and, and, and we just sat in the village and talked to some of the people. And at one point, I just saw... Um, uh, a woman with two little children going off down the track towards the forest. And, um, and I asked who that was. And she said, oh, that's um, so-and-so's grand grandmother. Her mother's out um, in the forest uh, cultivating the, you know, whatever the crop was, um, uh, the banana crop, whatever, in the forest. And um, the two little children just going off with their granny mm -hmm. to, to, and they're going to help gather wood and all that. And I saw in these two, I saw my two grandsons, you know. I just saw these little figures going off with their, their gran. And I thought, God, you know, if I ever thought that someone was going to do something that would destroy yes. utterly the life of my grandchildren, mm. I, you know, I, of course I'd be angry. I'd do anything to try and stop it. So a side of you just takes mm. over and you say, this is wrong. Whatever, whatever you think about, we need aluminium in the mm. world. This is wrong. And in this particular case, it was wrong because it was duplicitous. They had claimed they wouldn't need the local bauxite, mm. and then they they just built the the plant so to such a size that the only reason they could justify the increase in the size was if they got local bauxite. So they were very dodgy. Mm. And I mean, just to put it in perspective, the Indian government actually brilliantly stopped them from mining. Um, the company had had requested the chance to, uh, permission to mine the bauxite. The Indian government produced a report which said no way should they be allowed to do this. It would be destroying the area, mm. it would be polluting the area. There's already a lot of pollution from the, from the plant anyway. And, and then this just doesn't happen. And they said, we, you know, the 3,000 people, the Dongria Khand, the tribe they were called, the Dongria Khand, their rights are as important mm. as anybody else's rights, so you can't so stop it. An appeal is being launched. I think it's probably going to come up in the courts um, soon. And the local people in the state desperately want this plant. You know, it brings them more money, brings more money for the state. 
Um, so, you know, there you are. So I'm, I'm just, I mm. don't know where I got to, but I'm just trying to say it's, it's very difficult to find out um, the exact right or wrong yeah. point, and that's what yes. the book is about, really. Thank and you. you can do a lot of good, and you can do a lot of bad, but, you, you know, it's difficult to pin it down. And if you could just draw a curtain and say, right, that's, that's covered over the, the bad bit, mm. the rest of it is good, you know, wouldn't life be great? But it just isn't, it isn't like that. So things are more complicated and think carefully and understand the issue before you, before you take a side. Shall we turn now to some of your other writing? Because uh, we've, well, first of all, let's, staying with Hamish Melville, he observes at one point in the book that a book of my life and close scrutiny are the things I am most eager to avoid. And I just wondered if that was written from the heart those lines for you. And, and I just wondered if your, the publication of your diaries is one way of controlling what's written about you by writing it yourself. Well, I'm, I, I have to make the, the novelist plea usually. It's not me. Yeah. None of these characters have no, no, anything to do not. with me. I uh, make that plea, but, but you're right. I mean, there are certain things there that I, I can sort of uh, relate to. Um, part of the reason for publishing my diaries which I've kept extensively since 1969, was because various people were saying, will you write your autobiography? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, they're saying, we're going to write your biography. And then they said, well, well if we don't, will you write your autobiography? And I thought, well, yeah, that's the only way to, to head off a biography. Mm -hmm. And I, I wasn't terribly keen on having... Mm -hmm. I mean, a biography, has, a biography has been written of me, and it's not bad, really, but it's just not quite... Mm -hmm. It doesn't get very, quite get the essence of mm. what I think I am. But anyway, that's by the by. But an autobiography, I thought, well, if I do an autobiography, I'll, most of the material I'll use will be from my diary. Mm. So I thought, well, let maybe just publish the diaries. Um, and I love the diary form. I think it's a, I love reading diaries. Some of my favourite books, I mean, Virginia Woolf's mm. diaries are absolutely terrific. You can find her books a bit difficult, but the diaries mm. are wonderful. Yeah, and uh, diaries kept during the war, Harold Nicholson's diaries, mm. extraordinary really, because they are vivid, they are about that day, what happened on that day, I mean, your judgments are all up the creek, you realise you made a complete fool of yourself, you got somebody wrong, hope you turned out to be a good guy or a bad guy, but it is about what happened on that, that particular moment, and that's what you wrote at the time, so I suppose it's a sense of truth mm. there in, uh, in diaries. Are we going to see some more? Yes, I, I'm I'm contracted to supply a third volume um, from 1988 to 1998, I think it is. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, actually that's the next thing I've got to do, is to delve into them and sort mm. of cut them down. But when you talk about scrutiny and all that, I think you're quite right. Uh, a, a journalist once did a piece about me and said that Michael doesn't like to be scrutinised. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes words are absolutely spot on. You know, you can use lots of different mm. words, but occasionally a word is exactly right. That's just something about scrutinised is absolutely spot on. I think it's just I don't... I see scrutiny as a kind of like a, an outsider picking you over in a yeah. lab, you know, with a white coat on. You're on the, you're on the sort of glass thing there. Yeah. They take you a bit there, a bit there. No saying that. You, you have no comeback yeah. to scrutiny. But yet, as viewers and as readers of yours, we feel we know you quite well. We know you when your chi is down. For yes. instance, in the Himalayas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I mean that's that's true. That yeah. is the way it is. There isn't actually a lot more to me than what I've said. <laughs> this is it. 
this is, I have to say, you know. Um, what would they find when they scrutinise me? There's nothing more than what I've said already, really. Monty Python never really goes away. And those of you who watched last night, that zany performance by Eric Idle. Oh, that was Eric Idle. That was Eric. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh it was Terry. Did you know about that? I did. Advance? I did, yeah. yeah. I keep in contact with Eric, and he sort of... I knew something was happening, because he said he was going to be in London at this time. And we were emailing, and he's, he leads a rather grand life. He's out in France, and then I got this email saying, oh, you know, thank you for your email, blah, blah, blah. I'm swanning around Corsica in a yacht. I thought, oh, great. <laughs> so the next one I said, you know, I hope the yacht's been pirated or anything like that. He said, oh, I've, I've, I've suffered for it. I'm now in Dagenham. Um, and I knew, because I knew they were rehearsing in Dagenham. So um, I knew that that, what that meant. What do you think that inclusion means about... Does it say anything about British humour? I mean, the fact that, you know, it's, it's just wonderfully silly mm. and so much enjoyed. Yeah. Well, humour is such a mm. hugely important part of the British mm. character. It really is. I don't think there's any country in the world where it is more to the forefront. Usually self-deprecating, mm. but just in terms of jokes and all that sort of thing. We just... It's, it's one of those things where in a very unselfconscious way. We are very humorous, and, and there's a lot, it takes lots of different shapes and forms. You know, it can be... I mean, I, I pity Alan Bennett wasn't there. I can't imagine Alan <laughs> on the, the closing ceremony. So I said, But, um, you know, there's so many different form, shapes and forms mm. it takes, and it's, it's, been, it's shaped my life, you know, my... Admiration for Eric Sykes, for instance, yeah. just recently died. Lovely man, and I used to adore him when I was growing up in Sheffield. Just something odd about the way he acted. And it wasn't like he was going for laughs. He was a slightly bewildered character. You know? <laughs> Acting with Hattie Jakes, you know, what a strange pairing. And they were just wonderful. Right through to, um, you know, John Lemezier and, and, yeah. and um, you know, in Dad's Army, the two of them there, um, with Arthur Lowe. It's just, just terrific. I mean... All British culture there in in laughs mm. all the time. It's just through through comedy. So I think it's um, I think there should be more comedy and less you know disco. Personally, yeah. last night yeah. found the disco I think a number quite, of us would quite agree forgettable. With that. Yeah, yes. George Michael doing two songs <laughs> as opposed to none. I, I thought this was kind of rather <laughs> rather a sort of well, my, not my I decision. think Silla might have been his. Uh, Agent, don't you think? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Caldwell, yeah. Yeah. Getting two songs in. Yeah, no, he's a nice bloke. I have to say that, having met him a few times. Not, not many times. <laughs> How? <laughs> we share the same heath, Hampton Heath. <laughs> oh, God, oh, yeah, I mean, oh. oh. He went, he, George Michael um, drove his car by accident, well, <laughs> by accident, into Snappy Snaps. <laughs> On Rosslyn Hill in Hampstead. Do you remember that? Yes. You, you mentioned this place. It's a place where I go and get my photos done. And the next morning, someone had just put where the dent was in the front of the wall, just wham! Exclamation mark. <laughs> so there you are. British humour. <laughs> How do you look back on those days, the Monty Python days? Did you, is it like, in your memory, is it like a continuation mm. of those quite halcyon days you were describing with etc.? Yes, it was very much uh, uh, a continuation of what what, what started in Edinburgh, I mean, all that happened in Edinburgh was I was still, I was in my second year at university, mm. I still had to finish my degree, but I just had a feeling there on the stage, in this little place, that there was possibly a chance of doing 
becoming a writer and performer mm. as a living, you know, just possibly. I mean, it was so drummed out mm. of me by my parents. My father particularly wanted me to go into the professions, but I thought I could do this. And I suppose Python was the end, well, no, it was a continuation mm. of this same attempt not to pin yourself down to anything, but just meet a group of people who shared something similar, mm. a sense of humour, a sense of comedy, a way of doing it. And, um, yeah, I mean, what people forget, I think, is that Monty Python, to start with, was not popular or that successful. The BBC put it on very late at night. Mm. Um, the audience, we never got into the top 20 or anything like that. So we, but on the other hand, we could do exactly like I could do on stage uh, in mm. Edinburgh what we wanted. And things would, they'd succeed or they'd fail, yeah. but we could, at least we were the ones who were in control. And that's been a sort of guiding principle in everything I've done in my life, really try and make sure that you have some control over what you do because in the end you're probably the one who knows what you want to do best. Yeah. I know there'll be lots of questions that people want to ask but can I just, before we open it up to the audience, can I just ask you about your latest project that are about to yes. come on television yes. about Brazil? Yes. And the book as well? Yeah, um, a four-part series on Brazil. Uh, occasion Partly because, well, because I'd never been to Brazil, and I thought I'd been all over the world. I haven't been to the world's fifth biggest country. But also because of the end of the Olympics. Everyone's going to be talking about the next place, which they are. And I thought I'd go there and just open a few windows and, and look at the country as a whole and try and find out if it really exists or whether it's just a fantasy of sun, sea, sex, samba, and all those things that you think it is. And? No, it was a fantasy. No. <laughs> but very enjoyable. <laughs> Can we have the house lights up? And we've got some roving microphones. And if you would like to ask Michael something, just raise your hand and we'll, we'll try and group some questions together. Hello, Michael. Hello. Uh, did you go to uh, John Cleese's wedding last week? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Was John Cleese... John Cleese married last week? Yeah, according to the papers, yeah, he got married to his uh, young wife. Yeah. Oh, well, no, I'm just I'm most interested in that because... <laughs> no, no, no. John was going to be married in September. And I was supposed to be going to the wedding. Really? So this is a, a bombshell. It was, on, it was on the newspapers today. The in all the newspapers, today. John, well, I'll go and have a look. <laughs> Must have been a shotgun wedding, you probably know. <laughs> And he is 87. And thank now. you for coming. Yeah, well, thank you. That's, thank you very much. That's really quite shattered me, actually. <laughs> Not that I particularly wanted to see him marry yet another woman. You know. I think it's his How fourth long? one, though, isn't it? What? I think it's his fourth one that he's uh, gone through. Fourth, fourth yeah, you're fourth. right. I think it's yeah. his fourth one. Yeah, yeah. It's a question I tap here. Phew, yeah. Are you talking about the Daily Record or uh, a paper? <laughs> Can I ask if you bought the outfit? Well, what? Where's that? <laughs> Have you bought the outfit and I hope it can go back? No. Yeah. No, 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 no. I did. I wasn't going to wear an outfit anyway. I'm just going to wear my speedos, as John had requested. <laughs> <laughs> Another question just up there, at the top there. John married again. <laughs> Do you find that you're writing your diaries differently now that you know you may publish them? Oh, very, very good question. And one which I, 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 I try not to. I try to think, I just keep the diaries as I used to 
keep them. Um, but I'm sure there must be some little subtle difference. And do you know what it is? I think I sometimes spell out some of the characters. You know, I mean, not spell them out, but mm -hmm. I, I make clear that anyone who transcribed these guys would know exactly who I was talking about. Whereas they were much more of a scribble at one time. But I, I do try not to. Um, I mean, I keep the diary about... I, I fill it in the same time of day and about the same length. I haven't changed it. I haven't made it longer or anything like that. And nor have I... You know, it's a, it's a family diary, really. A lot, a lot of it's just about everyday life. Um, you know, it's not sort of... I don't go out celebrity searching, but... Um, Certainly, when, when I do have dinner with David Attenborough, I spell his name right. So <laughs> <laughs> Questions here. You have been in Edinburgh before. Well, hand up. I can't see where. Oh, there it is. Hello there. You have been in Edinburgh before. You did a lovely article or a piece on the Scottish colourists. Yes, I, exactly. Yes, I have. Yes, thank you. Um, I've done three or four arts documentaries. Um, and they've all been led by a team in Glasgow, actually, um, a, director, uh, a producer and director. Um, and they first came to me when um, uh, they were doing a program on Anne Redpath, who was, you know, from Hoyk and lived in Edinburgh and uh, died, well, I don't know when she died, sort of 60s or something like that, but a wonderful painter. I had two of her, two of her paintings. They were going to do a, um, a documentary about Anne Redpath and said, could we use some of your paintings, and so they came around to my house and, and filmed them, and then said, can we do it so that you would sort of, your search for Anne Redpath? I said, yeah, I'd love to know more about her. And that, um, that was successful, and that led on to the Scottish colourists, which of course brought me to Edinburgh, Ainsley Place, is it, where Caddle was and all that? Yeah, great. I really, really enjoyed those programmes. We may be doing another with them again. Yeah, it was a little sideline thing, but something I was very... Oh, <laughs> so someone's got a copy of the article about the wedding. I can see this is about the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe he I'll must have got later. married in order to take the you know the limelight away from Eric singing. Always look on the bright <laughs> side. You know, they do these things. It's a bit of upstaging. Or maybe it's the other way around. Yes. Question in the front row. Yes. Thank you. Microphone. At You've been from pole to pole around the world, up the Himalayas. If you, if you had to go on holiday with your wife, where would you go? Oh, you mean if I had to go on holiday with no, my wife? No, no. <laughs> I put that the wrong way. When you go on holiday. <laughs> uh, it's a good... No, yeah, absolutely a good question, because my wife, bless her, doesn't really like long flights. I mean, I actually occasionally I go to Australia. I'm going again in November, because do the publicity for everything, and she'll never come with me. I'll say, you love Australia. Um, but we do go, you know, yes, we'll go to, to New York. She likes that very much. Or we'll go with the family to somewhere in Europe. In fact, we're going to a place in Mallorca at the end of the month with uh, my son and his wife and our, our two grandsons. Um, but we don't take long holidays. We tend to go off, find a city, go to Paris for three or four days. I mean, that's about as much as we can take, really, together. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's, that's nice, you know, it's sort of... But she likes heat, doesn't I've read that she likes heat, and you like coming to Scotland. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Well, she, she likes heat and Scotland, actually, <laughs> I have to say. 
Um, not necessarily on the same day, but uh, <laughs> she, she, uh, yeah, she does like, tends to mm. like somewhere warm mm. and on a beach, whereas I like to traipse around uh, strange capitals. We went to Montenegro for a holiday last year. A lovely, beautiful coastline, absolutely fantastic. Mm. And um, the big issue, I wanted to go to the capital, which is not a place she wanted particularly to see. And I said, you can't come to the country without mm. seeing its capital. And she said, no, I just want to stay on the beach. And we went to the capital, and it was a lovely day on the beach. As soon as we got to the center of the, uh, of the country, it poured with rain for six hours. So I never heard the end of that. <laughs> no. Yes, a couple of questions here. And on the front row afterwards. Um, hello. Hello. Um, when you um, wrote about the aluminium plant, have you fictionalised it quite a lot? I'm, I'm just uh, vying for some information about the real aluminium plant. Um, is, it, is it quite old? Um, Would it have existed 40 years ago? No. Oh, well, that's a relief, because when you mentioned it, I thought that will be the place where my uncle used to work. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> where was that? Well, I don't know because I was okay. very small. Um, yeah. But he used to go off and um, he worked for uh, aluminium cookware. Okay. Thing. And did he, was he happy in the job? Did he think it was a good job? Well he was paid? always happy. So he was always happy. Yeah. Right. yeah. He was just a happy type of person. So he wasn't. Very funny, actually. Was he good? Yeah. Yeah. He, he didn't have any particular thing about aluminium plants and no, the environmental and I, damage or anything like that? No, no, but it wasn't very fashionable then. No, you're right. It's a question just yeah. behind no, I'm this just is curious because um, I, I did kind of think I need to research this. Yeah, no, this was well, 2004 like it was built. Oh, well, no. In Orissa. It's nothing to do with my family. Yeah. Yeah. And it was fictionalised well, in order to good. avoid me getting sued. Okay. Could you pass the microphone back? Thank you. Just that way. Thank you. Hi, you mentioned having dinner with David Attenborough, but I wondered if you'd actually had dinner with Bruce Springsteen, and, and if so, um, what you had to talk about. Yeah, um, I haven't had dinner with Bruce Springsteen. I'd sure. love to. I really would, but uh, there we are. He just didn't turn up, you know, and there we are. We said 7.30 for quarter to eight. Nibbles, cheese nibbles, you know, little canapes yeah. and things to start with, and then a Dubonnet. And no he science. didn't show up. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> There's another question at the front row here. And then, yeah. Oh, here it is coming down to you. A microphone. Yeah. There we are. Thank you. I think we'll just have time for one or two more questions. I know this is the, the book festival, but a lot of your earlier work was visual. Uh, now, those of us who have eyesight not as good as it was, do you think authors are going to be more on disc than on the written page? Um, well, I think authors ought to be both. I mean, you know, you've got to be on the written page, but you're talking about audio books or read books? Discs, yeah. yeah. I, I think they should always, well, I always try and read my books so they're available for people, you know, who can't see so well or whatever. Yeah, very important. Just take the two last questions in the middle here. Yeah. And then we should really stop. Hello. Um, Hello. I was born in Rio de Janeiro, but my dad was kind enough to raise me on Python and the goons and everyone else. Um, but I thought I was the only person who could quote Python until I moved to London. Did you meet <laughs> anybody in Brazil who, who knew you? 
Yes, yeah, there are quite a number of people who, who seem to know Monty Python. It was kind of a badge of sort of uh, good judgment culturally <laughs> to be able to, do, to, know, to know Python. We, um, we, we did a whole sequence in um, about one of the big soap operas. Brazilis, they love their soap operas. And they, they only go on for about nine months. And everybody watches the story, and then they have another story. And there was a, a lady called um, Cater, Catalina Faraz, who was in this uh, story. She said, everybody knows Monty Python. You know, on the cast, they all know Monty Python and all that. And certainly when I went on the lot to see the shooting, a lot of people sort of seemed to appreciate that I was a friend of Eric Idle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've done so many travel shows, but what one is your most favourite and most enjoyable to film? Um, well, there are two ways to answer that. I mean, um, one is that uh, the third episode of Around the World in 80 Days, when we were on the Dow, going from uh, Dubai to Mumbai, that was a real sort of game changer. Up to that time, I'd just been doing a sort of travel documentary, getting on the Euros, um, um, the um, um, Venice Express, what was it? What, what am I trying to Orient say? Express. Orient yeah, Express. Orient yeah. Express. Um, and all that. And suddenly, when we got on that boat, all the plans were abandoned. And we were just stuck with 18 Gujarati fishermen on whom our series, our lives, and our success depended. And it was just amazing. The, only one of them spoke English. And I, I've never been in a situation like that. And I've never been in a situation like that since. And it wasn't all that comfortable. But it was great, in the end, what it produced. And the way we actually formed a sort of rapport with people who didn't speak our language, totally different culture. It was just it was a, quite an aspiring thing. So that would be one of the things which I, I sort of um, remember most of all. But um, there are also the very first program in Himalaya, Pakistan, I think was one of the best in terms of the combination of landscape, characters, uh, customs, food, just stunning, a stunning part of the world. And, and, and I felt quite glad that we'd done that because at that time Pakistan was considered to be, you know, not quite an axis of evil, but, you know, you weren't meant to go there, you're going to be killed by the, you know, the Taliban or Al-Qaeda and all that. We went there, and everyone was very friendly, um, and, and nobody killed us, and, and we, we, got on, we got on extremely well. And I remember going in, and someone said, oh, you know, the, the, um, they had a real laugh out there, because on this border area, uh, there were American special forces operating in disguise, and he could tell them, you know, they were seven foot tall. The next guy was <laughs> five foot eight, you know, and these people going around like that, you know, in this kind of way, chewing, and you just knew. Anyway, so, I, but I learned a lot from that, and it was, I think, I think if I wanted to show somebody one episode of our travels that would really dazzle them, I'd always show that one. I thought it was terrific. We're going to have to bring the session to a close, but I'm going to take you back to oh. a desert island. All right that long before your television documentaries, oh, you yes. went on the desert islands with yeah. Roy Plumley in 1979. And I was listening to it again and was struck by your three choices that you were given at the end of the program. So for your piece of music, do you remember what you chose? Uh, was it Nimrod? Of yes. The, yeah. And as your luxury, a beautiful feather filled pillow. The most comfortable feather pillow ever. Yeah. 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 And would you choice, change those choices? Um, 
Well, I, I feel Nimrod's a bit overdone now, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, uh, the interesting thing is, if you look back, all, all the Pythons, I think apart from Terry Jones, have all done um, Desert Island Discs, and all of them chose Nimrod <laughs> quite separately. So it seems like the guy, people who don't know much about classical music's choice of classical music. It is a splendid piece mm. of music, so maybe I'd, maybe I'd stay with it, yeah. but uh, it's a toss-up between that and uh, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and with all your travels, would you still choose a pillow? Yeah, pillows yeah. very, very important. Yeah, I love, still, I'm immoderately keen on good pillows. Yeah. Um, now, for Michael's book, he chose Vanity Fair, citing its humour and insight, but you also quoted one of its most famous passages, which everybody will know, the world is a looking glass and gives back to every man the reflection of his own face. Frown at it, and it will tur in turn look sourly upon you. Laugh at it and with it, and it is a jolly, kind companion. I think that's what you've done. Ah. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much <laughs> thank for you. coming thank to you. tonight. Thank you very much for your questions. Uh, thank you. to the signing tent just next door please just let us get out first and then please come and meet Michael afterwards where he'll be signing copies of the truth <laughs>